This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. This is the Relic Radio Show, your weekly hour of old-time radio drama brought to you every Tuesday by RelicRadio.com. Don't forget, if you'd like to help support this and all of the Relic Radio shows, you can visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support makes all of this happen. Thanks to those who have helped out. We'll start off with the Voyage of the Scarlet Queen this week and hear their episode from October 23rd, 1947, titled Grafter's Fort and the Black Pearl of Galela Bay. After that, it's Suspense and Experiment 6R from September 23rd, The Catch Scarlet Queen, Connie Master. Position 2 degrees 25 minutes north, 128 degrees 13 minutes east. Wind light, sky fair. Remarks, left anchorage Cayu Bay, Halmahera, after unscheduled voyage to island of Batanta. Reason for voyage, grafters fort in the Black Pearl of Galela Bay. Shortly before the Civil War, a daring plan was conceived to speed the mail between east and west. It was the famous Pony Express. On April 3rd, 1860, the first Pony Express riders set out from St. Joseph, Missouri, with a pocket of lightweight mail. On the express route, other riders and fresh horses waited at relay stations in order that the mail could be carried without a break. Ten and one-half days after the first rider left St. Joseph, a Pony Express rider galloped into Placerville, California. The mail had crossed the country in record time. For a short time, the Pony Express continued its colorful operation as the riders fought against hardship and danger to bring the East and West closer together. But while the service was fast, it was also expensive. Too expensive to be continued. In 1861, the Pony Express was discontinued, but not before it had become a part of the American legend. Today, the Pony Express is remembered at both ends of the route. In St. Joseph, Missouri, is the Pony Express Monument, which recalls the courage of the riders. At the other end of the old route is the Pony Express Museum in Sacramento, which at one time was a relay station of the Express. The Pony Express Monument and Museum remind us of the rich heritage that as Americans we share and stand ready to defend. It was the tenth morning after we left the island of Bali that we pushed into Malacca Passage and swung close to the hundred-mile chain of islands that fringes the west coast of Halmahera. By noon, we trimmed our sail and started the channel run past Moratai. 
It was then that my chief mate, Gallagher, noted the receipt of a radio message in the log of the Scarlet Queen and came to the wheel to report it to me. It's an NC, Skipper. The schooner Regina aground in Galela Bay. Captain and mate ashore. But the message told only a part of the story. We found the Regina, all right, 50 yards offshore. Her stern awash to the main house. Her back broken on a reef. It wasn't until we'd coasted there on the landward side that we saw the rest. There was a man aboard. He was naked and he was dead. He'd been hanged from the foremast. And his body revolved and swung slowly from side to side as the current and the reef fought continually for possession of the battered hull. So Mutual continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, proudest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further in the strange Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. take me long to decide that I didn't want any part of this particular salvage and rescue job. I pushed the throttle open and swung the wheels of port to make the shortest turn possible back toward the open sea. The circle took us in toward shore, and at the closest point, the rest of the situation broke. By those dirties, what's going on? Keep down, Red. 50 caliber. I'd recognize that voice anywhere. It'll make a sieve out of the queen before we could get her out of range. Kill the motor, Red. Okay. All right. We'll drift in. Drop your hook! We'll take it to the bottom! What's the idea? I said drop your hook! I said what's the idea? Is that close enough? Gallagher, yeah. let go of the bomber anchor. Okay. Hand me a crowder. You're a good head, Captain. Start putting your small boat over the side. You and your chief mate, come ashore. I hope I ain't putting you to any trouble. I'm like moving up the trail, Captain. I don't waste no words. I want passage out of here. I want to go to Batata. My mate, a native girl, and me. It's about south, southeast of this island. That's not where we're going. All right, Captain. It's where I'm going. With you or without you. The shack we were approaching was quickly native, set in a clearing in the Nipa Palms. A hundred yards behind it was the fringe of the fairly large village of Galela with the inevitable tin-roofed frame building belonging to the single Chinese trader. We swung around the corner of the shack. I saw two more machine guns set up to cover the village. In front of their muzzles at the edge of the thing, there were four or five dark-skinned bodies sprawled in the sun where they'd fallen. Two people waited for us in the shack. All right, get inside and sit down. One I took to be the mate, swarthy, slightly built, with a faint smile twisting his thin lips. The other was the ugliest native girl I've ever seen. Flattened nose, a squat, sagging figure... 
the earlobes hanging almost to her shoulders from the weight of the G-jaws shoved into the gaping perforation. I couldn't figure why anyone would want to take her anyplace. If one would carry Banner on one ship. Shut up, you sniveling cow. Get over there and sit down. Right, never mind, Louise. Now let's talk it over, Captain. The beggars are after my pearls. They were diving for me. We had fair luck, and now they want them for themselves to take over to Cayo Bay to trade to that Chinaman in the village. They wrecked my ship, and... And they would starve us out in time if we stay here and let them, which we don't think is a very good idea. Huh, Grafter? You got any more to say, Grafter? I said enough, didn't I? You've been pumping nothing but lies, sir. These Tom Herons have been diving for quite a few generations. They don't have to rush machine gun for a handful of pearls. You don't have to hang them from a mast to keep them in line. What do you think of this fellow, Grafter? Uh, let him blow. That's all I have to say. Come on, Red. We're leaving. Okay, Skipper. I don't try it. Let them come, Grafter. We had to try it because there's no place to phone for help on Halmahera. The chair I threw at Grafter sent him off balance, but it stopped things for only a second. Red got his hands on Louis too late. The automatic flashed twice and Gallagher's knees buckled. He crumpled to the floor, his hands clutching at Louis and finally dragging him down, too. I forgot Grafter. I forgot everything but the red stain that was spreading from the sign of Gallagher's head running down his neck. Already soaking his jumper, I headed for Luis. I landed on him. I was reaching for his throat when... My head exploded under Grafter's gun muzzle and I went out of the fight. I don't know for how long, but when I came back, Red was still alive. He'd gotten to his feet. He was half blinded by blood, but he was still fighting. He'd lifted Luis by his belt and he was swinging his body at Grafter like a club. with nothing but heart keeping him moving. I got to my feet and started across the room to help him, but I couldn't get there. I grabbed the wall to keep me up. And the last thing I saw before I went out again was the squat, play-footed native girl, Bonner. She found a piece of broken furniture. She held it like a club, and she was moving in for the kill. And then the picture swam in my eyes, turned gray, and then blacked out. See, I knew that I was seeing again. I was still on my feet and walking. I didn't know where I was or how I'd gotten there. But I was out of the shack, out of sight of the village. Then I remembered the final picture of Red. They didn't have a reason in the world to stop short of killing him. Suddenly everything went out of me. It was kind of a relief to pass out. I believe you slept in a long time. Uh, you're come awake now. Red. Red. Uh, me no red. Me sing she. For a long time, trade the galela. Oh. Oh, no. I think a man belong along machine gun hit your head too hard. The grafter. Oh. No, not hard enough. Who'd you say you were? Oh, me sing she, trader. You own house belong to me. A galela village boy is my friend. But they bring you along this place. Yeah, why? Oh, it's hard. I tell them. I want to help you. Uh, you like need help? I don't know what I mean. What you and Galela boys want. Oh, I want your fast passage to a place of ancestor for those who belong to machine gun. You want to get rid of Grafter and Louis too, huh? Uh, hey, you help. A Galela boys help. Very soon. All of that dead long time. What did they do to Galela boys? How'd they say, long you? 
Well, they told me they find plenty of pearls that Galela boys want to take pearls back. Oh, that too. Catch man of pearl. Mm, man of pearl. Well, you talk straight, Singh. Maybe we all help. Oh, you listen. All right. Long time. Uh, big shark spurt. He said it. Mm. When Galela boy catch a big black pearl. Uh, many wives come to village, you savvy? That's savvy, and they found the black pearl. Oh, one black pearl. Grafter and Louise could keep all the rest, but they still wouldn't give it up. Would be a wonderful pearl thing. Uh, bring much money, plenty wives. Uh, you help poor Galella boys. They catch your wives. You catch a man belong along machine gun. Sounds like a fair trade. Think you have any guns here? Oh, uh, no guns. You have dynamite. Not dynamite. It's savvy dynamite? Oh, savvy. Oh, catch a man of fish along dynamite. You know one boy, he's strong swimmer. He swim to my ship. Oh, I know men are strong swimmer. One boy. Mm. You tell him go long way up beach. You tell him swim long way out from mm. my ship from reef. You savvy. Oh, oh savvy. They no see from beach. Good. You go bring him here. He take note from me to ship. He bring back box with dynamite and gun. Go on now, chop, chop. <laughs> very good. Oh, very soon, Jonas. Boom. Oh, that's a fly away to ancestor. It took a little better than an hour and a half Sing's boy to get to the ship and back Another 45 minutes The cap and fuse the dynamite All right, listen, Sing uh-huh. You take dynamite to beach near machine guns Not close, you savvy You uh-huh. stay in shadows Oh, like a tiger Yeah, like a tiger Then as soon as you get there You light off dynamite and throw it like a soldier. Not at the machine gun, Sing. Some on the beach, some in the water. Those at machine gun will fire at noise, savvy? Oh, what the matter? Throw to machine gun. Because they may be high black pearl. You kill them, they can't tell you where. Savvy? Ah, savvy. Oh, you're very strong, man. Very smart, like a thing. I throw to beach, to water. Ah, then you come back here. Wait for me. Oh, where you go? I go to their house. Grafter is there. When he hears dynamite and maybe machine gun, he runs out of house. And I catch him like this. <laughs> oh, you have a minute for in the village tomorrow. I go now. After he left, I pocketed my forty-five and skirting the edge of the silent, darkened village, I headed for the shack in the clearing. The gun was still in my hand when I heard the faintest rustle of almost silent feet behind me. The safety catch snapped off as I whirled and I was ready for a hip shot. But I didn't use it. Please, don't cut that thing. You are savvy long me. I'm saying, what the devil are you doing here? Why aren't you on the beach with the dynamite? Oh, gotcha. Took a little, boys. Uh, they like to shoot dynamite. Thing, if you mess this up, I'll... Look, you stay this place. Uh-huh. Right here. I go to shack. You don't come along with me. Oh, savvy, savvy. I stay this place. In shadow, like hiding tiger. I didn't risk a look through the window when I got to the shack to see what was in store for me. I inched to a position about three feet from the doorway and waited. It wasn't for long. Then the first charge blew. And the answering burst of machine gun fire blasting at flashes and shadows told me that the reactions on the beach were normal. Almost simultaneously, I heard feet hit the floor inside the start of the door. I moved into position just as he stopped in the doorway. It wasn't Grafter. It was even more to the point it was Louis. And I smashed my right hand, automatic and all, into the middle of his sneering face. Everything I felt, grief, hate, a continually beating desire to avenge Red went into the blow. Get up, Luis. What are you doing here? Get on your feet! I've got some talking to do first. So help me what I'll do to you after that. 
I don't know. I, I got no talk with you. Don't, Louise. Help me keep my hands off of you. Be careful what you say. I, 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 what did you say? Now, sit down. What do you want? I want the black pearl. What the devil? What black pearl? Wait, wait. How about it? The black pearl from Galela Bay. You're off your head. We didn't get any black pearls here. We didn't even work the beds. We ran in here from some weather, and the melee's attacked. Why do you keep asking for it, Louis? Well, you think that I lie with a 45 in my face? I'm telling you the truth. You, you want to see our pearl? Is it a pearl from a year and a half of working with the Moscas? I, I show you on the table there. Sure, Louis. Go get your pearl. We got the sack off the ship. I show you what we sweat for. It was as almost as though he told me what he was going to do. And I let him. He opened the drawer. And I knew from the way his hand spread forefinger stretched for a trigger guard that I was right. I let him pick it up. And when I saw the glint of metal, I fired. His right arm jerked between elbow and shoulder and swung back loosely. His fingers relaxed and the gun dropped back into the drawer. You got a left arm, Luis. You want to try it again? Don't you know I want you to, Luis? I saw you kill my chief mate. Don't you know I want you to try something so I can kill you? You're crazy. Maybe you're right, Luis. I didn't kill your chief mate. No? Maybe I was dreaming, huh, Luis? If somebody killed him, it wasn't me. Oh, you jerk. Listen, Luis, the pearl. Tell me where the black pearl is. I don't know what you mean. We don't have any black pearl. It is the truth. You machine gunned the melees that came after it. They wrecked your ship to get it, remember? The men in the village want it, Louise. They want the wives it'll bring. Louise, the captain. What is it, Sting? I can't turn around. I am watchful long window. Big danger belongs this house. Captain, I think I know. What do you mean, Sting? Please, make a step where from the red line belong window. All right, I savvy. Big danger come from big spirit. Ten seconds later, I learned why Singh had moved me. A heavy hunting spear streaked in through the window. Luis collapsed under the impact. I didn't have to check pulse to know that the spearman, whoever he was, had cheated me out of the final payoff for Gallagher. Ah, oh, that happened, Mr. Copter. I catch a danger away from you. Yeah, thanks, Singh. But you'll never learn about Black Pearl from this fella. He flies there faster, ancestor. Uh, too. Come along, me. We maybe catch Grafter, huh? Oh, no. All the same with this one. What? You mean dead? Fly on happy wing. Oh, very dead. How? Galena boys put two dynamite very close alongside the machine gun. You killed him? Ah. You plenty fool. Now who tell you where to find Pearl? Oh, Galena boys no want your Pearl no more. No want you? Ah. Uh, Galela boys, I want you one thing. A poor girl belong to Galela village. Poor Bana. You bring her, huh? Me bring her? Where is she? Oh, she long your ship. On my ship? Who took her out there? Oh, no fella take her. Uh, she take a fella. He hurt. She took someone sing this fella. His name Gallagher? No. Uh, not, uh, Gallagher. Uh, you think her name belong to me. What do you mean, saying No savvy. Uh, you talk a name, same time you come awake. What? Um, him name, um, uh, Red. Yeah, Red. Are you sure? It's no make mistake. Oh, no mistake. A she big friend along Red. Uh, you bring her village, belong her, 
Uh, you big friend for Bonner. Sing, I don't have time to explain this in case you don't understand it, but uh. I promise if Bonner wants to go to the Roy wedding in London, I'll take her there. Red! Yeah. Where are you, Red? In my cabin, Skipper. What? Well. Hey. Yeah. You look great, Red. Yeah. What's that mess on your head? Uh, never mind. That's Banner's private mixture of fish scale, seaweed, and mud. If you try to take it off, I'll have a slit your throat. Besides, I got a gouge across my temple a half inch deep and six inches long. The great one will rest his tongue. The great one? <laughs> yeah. She liked the way I swung Louis around my head. Oh, right. If you knew what I've been through, I thought you were dead. I almost was. Then Banner walked in and clubbed those two with a with a chair or something. I passed out. She hid me till dark and brought me out here in a canoe. I promised her a trip to London if she wants it, but I suppose she'd rather have her Galela village. Bonner, do I go ashore now? Ashore? Hmm? Skipper, are you nuts? The great one will rest his raw. Ashore. Well, what's the matter? Sing, she said her village was waiting for her with open arms. Well, I suppose he's right, but not Galela. Her village is on Batanta, the joint where Grafter wanted to go. They were going to deliver her to her husband for a big hunk of ransom. Ransom? To get Bonner back? Yeah. Red, let me tell you now, before this starts to make the kind of sense I think it's going to, I've been knocking my brains out trying to locate a black pearl that held a lot of magic until we killed everybody in Grafter's outfit so they couldn't tell me there wasn't any pearl. Oh, yes, there is. What? Yeah. Tell him, Bonner. Who is the pearl? One is the wife of the Sultan of Batanta. One was taken by force from one's place by those the great one be together as saplings. One's noble husband pledged gold, pearls, and right stones to equal the weight of oneself for one safe return. Well, that's quite a pile. Well, then your buddy Sing Shi horned in on the deal. He got the Malays to wreck Grafter's ship and made his own deal with her old man. Plenty wives for Galela boys. How many? Only 200, and they must be buddies. And he led me around by the nose and called himself a simple traitor. If those in whose care I rest would decide upon their demand upon one's husband, one is anxious to journey at once to one's home and husband. Mm, poor Banner. She don't care who gets the ransom. She just wants to go home. <laughs> wasted three days getting Bonnet to Batanta, convincing her husband that there was no death between us, and getting back to Caillou Bay, where one of Kang's luggers was waiting impatiently with our sailing orders. By one that afternoon, we'd weighed anchor, picked our way through the reefs under power, and nosed into the wind-brushed waters of Malacca Passage once more. The crewmen, relieved as always to get their faces pointed toward wide, deep water, jumped to their stations with a will. The big main boom, its sails filling suddenly with a heavy gust, swung recklessly to starboard, sending the men at the rail tumbling into prone positions to escape its sweep. Snapped out, and the pull of the sail sent a shudder through the ship. The jibs ran up, then the mizzen, the deck canted beneath me. Our sun in the world took on the atmosphere of speed that comes only from leaning sails, 
rushing water at the rail and taut rigging, making a song with the wind. I'm not giving you much of a hand today, Skipper. Ah, forget it, Red. With a head in the shape that yours is in, you'd probably foul us up anyway. <laughs> All right. Take my watches, then. I've earned a rest. No argument there, Red. <laughs> but she took good care of you, though. And you can't always have a beautiful nurse. Oh, no, no, no. You and I are thinking of different kinds of beauty, Skipper. The picture of her when she waded into Grafter and Louis. Oh, that was real beauty. And the picture of that hair, that figure, those earlobes when we met her. Yeah. Ah, that's real nightmare. But I love her. <laughs> All right, if you want to cut in. <laughs> Drink, Skipper? From this distance and with no gang fights in sight, I'm safe on all sides. You're cut in on. After you, mate. After you. Log entry. The Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled from San Francisco, 20,221. Wind fresh, sky fair. Carrying full sail. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney. Master. In the exciting history of America's development into the foremost industrial nation in the world, the McCormick Reaper stands out as a monumental invention. Back in the 1830s, the flat, fertile prairie lands of the Middle West were ideal for growing grain. The all-important crop of wheat was easy to sow and to grow, but harvesting the grain was a different matter. A laborer swinging a large hand scythe moved slowly down the fields. Even a strong man could cut no more than an acre of grain a day. Farmers had to help each other to harvest crops, but unfortunately all crops ripened at about the same time and had to be harvested in ten days. So it became a practice for farmers to plant only as much grain as the men in each family could reap in that short time. Then came the mechanical reaper, perfected by Cyrus McCormick. His first reaper, made in 1831, was a dismal failure. The noise terrified the horses which pulled the machine. It didn't cut evenly, and it damaged some of the grain. But McCormick was not one to give up easily. He kept working on his invention and secured his first patent in 1834. There was still no demand for his machine, however, so he kept working on it. By 1841, he had a horse-drawn machine resembling a chariot with a cutting arm extending several feet out at one side. As the reaper moved forward, steel fingers separated the grain into bunches of stalks that were cut by a sawtooth action resembling today's barber clippers. A large reel revolved around the cutting arm, each blade bending a section of wheat down and pressing it into the cutting action. McCormick sold two of these machines and opened a factory in Chicago. In the next two years, he built and sold 80 reapers. By 1851, he was selling 1,000 machines a year. By 1857, 23,000. McCormick's reaper caught on and was making farming in the prairie land productive and profitable. Over the great expanses of the West, 
our agricultural frontier was rolling toward the Rockies at the rate of 30 miles per year. Yes, at one time, the harvesting of vast fields of grain offered a problem of manpower. But it was solved by the mechanical reaper of Cyrus McCormick, who had the spirit typical of all American inventors, somehow there must be a way. Let's find it. of the Scarlet Queen stars Elliot Lewis as Phil Carney with Ed Max as Gallagher. And tonight featured Jack Crucian as Singh with Rolf Sedan as Luis and Virginia Gregg as Banna. Music scored and conducted by Richard O'Ron. The Scarlet Queen, produced by James Burton, is written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman. <laughs> Suspense. Tonight, Autolite and its 96,000 dealers present Mr. John Lund in Experiment 6R, a suspense play produced and edited by William Spear. Friends, I know you've enjoyed trouble-free summer driving if you've replaced those old-style narrow-gap spark plugs with White Gap Autolite Resistor Spark Plugs. Tell them why, Harlow. Tell them why. Because Autolite Resistor Spark Plugs, with the exclusive built-in 10,000-ohm Autolite Resistor, give you a full, even spark all along the line of fire. Keep going, Harlow. You're doing great. Well, your engine idles smoother with Autolite Resistor Spark Plugs. Performs better on leaner gas mixtures. Actually saves you gas. You're getting better all the time. Autolite Resistor Spark Plugs cut down radio and television interference, too. So insist on Autolite Resistor Spark Plugs. Okay, Harlow, give them the old punchline. Don't be satisfied with spark plugs supposed to be just as good. Get genuine Autolite resistor spark plugs. You're always right with Autolite. And here's a reminder, suspense may be seen on television in many parts of the country every Tuesday night. And now with Experiment 6R and with the performance of John Lund as Morris Brandt, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. Entirely fitting somehow that here in the Carlton Plaza Hotel, where he spent so much of his life, we should honor this hero of science and pay him our humble gratitude. Mr. Brandt is, as you know at this moment, in our special clinic, and it's from there that he will address us on the subject of Experiment 6R, a page in the progress of science with which his name will forever be associated. When I received his letter and heard the thrilling news that, unknown to any of us, a human volunteer had actually... <laughs> well, it was, of course, inevitable that I should call this distinguished gathering together. Uh, I won't speak any longer now because minutes are precious. Uh, we're ready. Will you speak to us now, Mr. Brandt? Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Morris Brandt. Brandt speaking. I don't know exactly how you good people of science are going to take my little story. 
the history of my own part in Experiment 6R. When I finish my story, if I finish it, you will wonder, perhaps, why I wish to tell it at all. Well, something about the irony of this situation appeals to me. I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. You know, even the fact that somebody just now pressed a buzzer and I jumped to attention and started speaking is erotic. Because I guess that's how Experiment 6R began a couple of months ago. Yes, just like that. Brand speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brand. Very well, sir. It was precisely 3.15. And 3.15 was the time for Mr. Paul Koblenz's afternoon coffee. Naturally, it was beneath the dignity of the manager of the Carlton Plaza Hotel to have the coffee served by anyone less than me, the assistant manager. And so each day, the coffee tray with its silver urn, silver sugar and creamer, silver spoons, and graceful Limoges cups was left on my desk by a waiter, ready for the humiliating ceremony. I picked it up and went in. Ah, Mr. Brett. You'll join me, of course. Thank you, Mr. Koblenz. A little coffee is very relaxing. It was relaxing for him. My duties only began with bringing in the coffee. I had to set the silver tray on his desk and then wait while Mr. Koblenz detached a small key from his desk chain. Then it was my job to take the key and open the small wall cabinet near the heavily draped window where Koblenz kept a supply of liquor. I would take out a bottle of expensive brandy and carry it over to the desk. Koblenz liked the dash of it in his coffee. Oh, thank you, Mr. Brett. It was this part of the silly ritual that I hated most. That locked cabinet was a symbol of Koblenz's suspicion and distrust. No one but me was ever permitted to enter his sacred office, and I didn't drink. But that made no difference. The liquor was expensive and might be stolen. By whom? By me. Mr. Brandt, I've been looking over the monthly accounts. Your latest innovation seems to be doing uh, quite well. The stag room? Oh, that was a lucky guess. I think not. Your reasoning, I believe, was that businessmen like a place to lunch by themselves in quiet and comfort. It seems, Mr. Brandt, that you have the rare talent of knowing what people want. Well, I hope so. Especially when giving people what they want can be so uh, profitable and lead to give you what you want. Yes, indeed, Mr. Brandt. You have a very successful record during your 12 years here. Perhaps too successful. Why... What do you mean? Success has the habit of making a man crave something further. I think we shall have to have a talk some day soon, Mr. Brandt. Uh, but that will be all for today. You may replace the brandy. He handed me the little key to the cabinet. He had finished with me for the day. Back in my office, I thought of what Mr. Koblenz had said. Too successful meant only one thing. He thought that I was ambitious to hold his job. My only possible advancement. Mr. Koblenz was quite correct. I would do anything to have that job. Anything. Now, after 12 years of it, I was determined to have that job. Not because it was a better job, but because it was his. I didn't sleep well that night in my cramped inside room. 
thinking of Mr. Koblenz in his penthouse suite. But finally it was morning, and the hotel came to life again, with all its problems. There were the usual two or three bad checks accepted by the night clerk, and all the other boring, commonplace irritants. The only drama of the day was brought in by the housekeeper. Um, may I speak to you a moment, Mr. Brandt? Uh, yes, Mrs. Oven? It's about 1402, Mr. Brandt. What seems to be the trouble? The maids won't make up 1402. Why? The room. I know it sounds crazy, but that room is full of rats. R- live rats? <laughs> Nonsense. The maids are imagining no, things. It's true. I saw them myself. Very well, Mrs. Oberman. I'll see about it. Everyone's afraid to go in 1402, so I... Hope you can get him out of there. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Brand. Live rats. What next? Room clerk, please. Hello? Brand speaking. Who's the occupant of 1402? Dr. Tomlinson? Is he in his room? Well, when he returns to the hotel, please let me know. I shall have to speak with him. Well, it was fairly typical of the kind of problem which is automatically relayed to the assistant manager, being hardly glamorous nor important enough for the manager to be bothered with. Some difficult and taxing assignment, like uh, greeting Greer Garson, maybe, would be more fitting use for the time and talents of Paul Koblenz. As I thought about it, and him, I began to hear a sound in my head like a clock ticking. I recognized that it was almost 3.15. As busy as I was, I could sense, without looking at the clock, that it was nearly 3.15. It was time for the buzzer on my desk to sound out the call which symbolized all the tyranny, all the pompous authority, and the warped, sadistic soul of... Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Very well, sir. Again, the humiliating ritual performing the services of a waiter to satisfy Paul Koblenz of his authority. And today he began the talk with me that he had been promising for so long. Uh, Mr. Brandt, you have been with us for 12 years, is that correct? Yes, Mr. Koblenz, 12 years and two months. And you have always impressed me as an ambitious man, a competent man. Thank you, sir. But you must realize that you have come as far up the ladder as is possible, at least while I am alive. Well, I don't think that... And I am a very healthy man for my age, Mr. Brandt. Eventually, you may replace me. But, Mr. But Koblenz... it will be a long time to wait, I'm afraid. A very long time indeed. Well, I'm, I'm really awfully busy, Mr. Koblenz. I... I have observed certain signs of restlessness in you during the last year or so. Restlessness? You are not satisfied to be merely the assistant manager. You dream of occupying this desk someday. My... Will that be all, Mr. Koblenz? I will tell you when you may go. You would like to have my salary, which is very considerable, instead of your own, which is uh, a good deal smaller. <clears throat> I, I must say that uh, no one is so well qualified. If anything should uh, happen to me, you would automatically be appointed manager of the hotel. Mr. Koblenz, I'm sure we I never... We will not discuss the matter further. I just wanted to, you to know that I know, as they say, what the score is. Have you finished your coffee, Mr. Koblenz? I have finished my coffee, Mr. Brandt. Good afternoon. It was exactly 
as Koblenz handed me the little key to the cabinet. And I replaced the brandy. I took the coffee things back into my own office and closed the door. I knew exactly what Koblenz had meant. He had actually said, I know you would like to eliminate me in some way, and I warn you, I'm on the alert. Don't try anything funny if you know what's good for you. As if there were the slightest chance. As much as I hated him, there was nothing I could do. Mr. Brandt speaking. You asked me to call when Dr. Tomlinson returned to the hotel, Mr. Brandt. What? Oh, oh yes. Thank you. Oh, yes, sir. I am Mr. Brandt, doctor, the assistant manager of the hotel. Oh. Uh, may I step in for a moment? Well, yes, come right in. Uh, what can I do for you? Well, uh, I suppose you noticed your room hasn't been straightened. And of course, it's not difficult to see the reason why. You uh, have them caged, I see. Oh, yes, yes. You mean my rats. They're beautiful specimens, aren't they? Beautiful. How did you get them into the hotel? Oh, the uh, cage fits into a leather carrying case. <laughs> Rather clever, isn't it? I see. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. Tomlinson, but I'm afraid those rats will have to go. Yes, dear me, I was afraid of that. But only be for another day, Mr. Brandt. I'll be returning to New York tomorrow. I, I can't leave them now. They're the subject of an experiment that may lead to the cure of an extremely deadly disease, which, for scientific purposes, we refer to as 6R. Well, I'm you, sure, Dr. Yeah, let me show you something here. Take a look at this label. Uh, paradimethyl... Doctor, I really uh, don't paradimethyl have... Paradimethylaminoasbenzamine. It's commonly called a butter yellow, Mr. Brandt. You see, when a rat gets a bit of this daily in his food, he develops six R within four months, a spreading internal growth which insidiously destroys vital tissues. And by the time the results are evident, the rat is past all hope, and in a very short time, it's dead. Yes, Doctor, it's very fascinating, I'm sure. But I'm afraid... Oh, will this powder induce 6R in a human being, too? Almost certainly, but naturally we haven't been able to try it. No volunteers. I don't suppose it requires very large doses, either. To develop 6R? Oh, no, indeed. Just a very tiny bit daily, and then... (laughs) Uh, Mr. Brandt, surely you understand the importance of this work and why I must have the rats with me constantly? But uh, if you insist, I shall move to another hotel, of course. No, Doctor. I represent the management, and I ask you to stay. And I'll see that your room is straightened. Well, I I must say that's wonderful of you, Mr. Brandt. Uh, Are you interested in science? Not until now. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, uh, by the way, please tell the maid not to go near the cages. Sometimes the rats might bite, and it might be that they could transmit 6R that way. We're not sure, you understand, but it's better not to take any chances. Yes, I understand. Is that powder, I won't attempt to pronounce it, is it... Quite safe in here? Oh, yes, yes, see? No one could find it here. I see. And besides, no one would know what it was. If some got lost, it looks just like yellow dust. It would only be thrown away. I have more for the experiments. Don't worry, Mr. Uh, Brandt. Yes. Well, I'm sorry if we've inconvenienced you, Doctor. Oh, have you had dinner? Why, no, as a matter of fact. Oh, would you join me? Seven o'clock in the grill room? Well, I should be very pleased. Good. We'll talk some more. You know... I should think that someone who, well, is desperately ill, let us say, would be honored to be your volunteer. I know in similar circumstances, I should be proud. Until seven, Doctor. <laughs> 
Yes, Mrs. Overman. It is very important that Dr. Tomlinson finish his stay. Yes, sir. I will meet the chambermaid in his rooms promptly at 7.15 and see to it that the rats don't frighten her. Thank you, Mr. Brandt. The doctor arrived exactly at 7. And at 7.10, while he was still sipping his sherry, I excused myself and went up to 14.02. When the chambermaid was taking the soiled linens to the laundry wagon in the hall, leaving me alone in Dr. Tomlinson's room, I filled a hotel envelope with a deadly yellow powder. I was back downstairs before the soup was served. I have never enjoyed a dinner more. Dr. Tomlinson prattled on, but I didn't even hear. I was thinking what a pleasure it was going to be to have coffee at 3.15 tomorrow afternoon with Mr. Paul Copeland. Autolite is bringing you Mr. John Lund in Experiment 6R. Tonight's production in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Say, uh, Hap. Yes? My nephew went to camp this summer, and they taught him a lot of useful things, like how to send smoke signals with a brush fire and blanket. Oh? You should see the lovely charred hole in our living room rug. Yes, but did they teach him about the new wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs? No, Hap, they didn't, so I had a man-to-man talk with him. I told him, replace old-style narrow-gap spark plugs with wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs for easier starting in cold temperatures, for smoother idling. For better performance on leaner gas mixtures, they actually save you gas. Mm, that's useful information. Right. I told him confidentially, of course, that every Autolite resistor spark plug has an exclusive built-in 10,000-ohm Autolite resistor. I said insist on Autolite resistor spark plugs now. Don't accept spark plugs that are supposed to be as good. That's telling them. I said, my boy, that mighty might, that Autolite resistor, explains why Autolite resistor spark plugs mean easier starting in cold temperatures, smoother idling, better performance on leaner gas mixtures. They actually save you gas. So insist on Autolite. And now Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage John Lund in Experiment 6R, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Yes, Mr. Koblenz. A waiter had just brought the tray, set it on my desk, and left. My door was locked. I took out the envelope with the powder, put a pinch of it into one of the costly Limoges cups, filled both cups with coffee from the silver pot, and carried the tray into the sumptuous office next door the office that would soon become my own. You will join me, of course, Mr. Brandt. Of course, Mr. Koblenz. Of course I would. I always had. But beginning with today, I would enjoy it. There was not the slightest alteration in the usual ridiculous routine. Koblenz removed the little key from his chain and handed it to me. I got the brandy from the cabinet. Koblenz poured a bit of the brandy into his cup and took a sip. Hmm. Exceptionally good coffee today, Mr. Brandt. Make it yourself? Hmm? What? <laughs> Why, 
How do you mean? Oh, don't take me so seriously, Brandon. But knowing your efficiency in all matters of the hotel, I'm sure you could prepare a very unusual cup of coffee. Well, that, that's very nice of you to say, Mr. Koblenz. But I know you haven't time to waste in making coffee. Too busy thinking of ways you can work your way into my job, aren't you? Hmm? And as I told you before, you won't get it while I live, and I come from a very long-lived family. Yes, surely. More coffee, sir? Nothing could possibly go wrong. I had found out enough from Dr. Tomlinson to know that humans, and I stretched a point to include Paul Koblenz, that humans responded to drugs in very much the same way as rats. That was the reason rats were used for experiments in medical research. Almost invariably, the drugs that could kill a rat could kill a man. But the powder would never be detected, only its effect. When, after months of tiny doses, Koblenz would suddenly learn that he was harboring the hidden killer, 6R. I kept the powder in my jacket pocket. As the weeks passed, it became a matter of routine to put some in Paul Koblenz's daily coffee. But try as I would to remain calm, sometimes the excitement of it would become almost unbearable, particularly at the moments when I served the coffee. I can't tell you what pleasure this afternoon cup of coffee gives me. And, of course, it gives me one of the few chances I get during the day to see my busy and uh, trusted assistant. That is a pleasure, too. Thank you, Mr. Koblenz. Oh, I uh, received a letter a few days back from a Dr. Ernst Tomlinson. Tomlinson? He was a guest here, I believe, for several days. Oh, really? Well, I, I don't... Surely think... you haven't forgotten... He wished specifically to be remembered to you. The gentleman with the rats. Rats? Oh, oh yes, I, I do recall something. Yes, of course. I realize, Mr. Brandt, that I have allowed many of my managerial duties to fall on your capable shoulders. Uh, which action has perhaps given you a mistaken opinion of your authority on these premises? But really, Mr. Brandt, live rats in a room. The animals were caged? I think I should have been consulted. Fortunately... Our other guests were not cognizant of the fact that we were for two days uh, zookeepers of a sort. If they had known, I'm afraid, Mr. Fenwick should have immediately replaced you. I'm sorry, Mr. Koblenz. Yes, I am sure. The good doctor seemed quite taken by you, Mr. Brent. Have you a personality side you've never shown me? I've always considered you rather dull. Will that be all, Mr. Koblenz? You're angry. Well, no matter. See, yes, that would be all. I'm rather tired today. Go, please. Dr. Tomlinson had written, but only to compliment me. That was good. He hadn't missed any of the yellow powder. As far as Koblenz's insulting behavior was concerned, well, there wouldn't be much more of it. Dr. Tomlinson had said there were no outward effects to 6R. The tiny admission of fatigue on Paul Koblenz's part was, I felt it. I watched Paul Koblenz grow progressively more testy and insulted. Two weeks into the fourth month of experiment, and in a way I didn't expect, the last scene began. Under the insurance laws of our state, all employees participating in group insurance had a yearly physical examination. 
The four months Dr. Tomlinson had considered necessary to allow the growth of 6R were almost completed. By now, 6R would have taken hold of Paul Koblenz, sufficiently to be recognized in the medical examination, and sufficiently to be at that point incurably fatal. Even at this late date, there were outwardly no signs of Koblenz's illness, which would make the announcement by the insurance doctor even more shocking. It was a nervous moment. Brandt speaking. Mr. Brandt, I have set aside 2.30 as the time for my visit to the insurance doctors. That should get me back to my office for coffee. After which, if you have no pressing duties, you may... Yes, Mr. Koblenz. At 3 o'clock, I heard him come back into his office next door. He walked rather heavily, I thought. I wanted desperately to see him at once, to see the reaction he must have to the news the insurance doctors had given him. But I waited. Finally, it was 3.15. Brandt speaking. Coffee, Mr. Brandt. Yes, Mr. Koblenz. The waiter had brought the coffee tray as usual. I carried it in. Koblenz sat quietly at his desk his face partially in the shadow from the drawn blinds. You'll join me, of course, Mr. Brand. Oh, thank you, Mr. Koblenz. Here's the key. I set the tray down, took the little key to the liquor cabinet which stood against the wall, and bent over to open it. There was a new mirror above the cabinet. And when I saw it, it made me drop the bottle. Anything wrong, Mr. Brand? You seem startled. The cops... The cops. You've turned absolutely white as death. But then I meant to talk to you. You haven't been looking well for some time. You... you changed. I beg your pardon? You, you switched the coffee cups while I turned away to get your brandy. I always do. It is an old custom in my family. An old German custom. A very old custom. A very old and long-lived family. Have you... all this time? Yes, Mr. Brandy. All this time. Oh. Operator, connect me with the insurance doctors, please. In 308. Is it possible for you to see Mr. Brandt immediately, Doctor? Thank you. It's urgent. And so... Experiment 6R is finished. I am glad to have been of service to science. But I just couldn't die without sharing the, the credit with Mr. Koblenz. I am sorry, truly sorry, that he could not be there with you today in his old capacity as manager of the hotel. But Mr. Fenwick saw fit to discharge Mr. Koblenz when it was brought to his attention that live rats had been permitted to spend the night in one of our rooms. And now, thank you for your attention and, and goodbye. I was just bringing your order, Mr. Brandt. Your friend just phoned and told me. If you'd only mentioned it before. You... Friend? Mm-hmm. Mr. Koblenz. Koblenz? I didn't order anything. Oh, now, Mr. Brandt, it's no trouble. We know now about your little custom. 
You want coffee at 3.15 every day, you shall have it. Come now. It's just 3.15. Suspense presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, John Lund in Experiment 6R. Uh, John, do you mind if I ask you a question? Why, of course not, Harlow. Okay. What do you think of Autolite resistor spark plugs? Well, Harlow, let's put it this way. Yes? I can't imagine you selling anything but the best. Oh, well, now, I... now, don't be coy, Wilcox. You just keep right on telling people that Autolite resistor spark plugs are the best. Any more questions? No, John, and thank you. I'll also tell people that in its 28 plants from coast to coast... Autolite makes more than 400 products for cars, trucks, airplanes, and boats, including complete electrical systems for many makes of America's finest cars. Batteries, spark plugs, generators, starting motors, coils, distributors. All engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly, because they're a perfect team. So, friends, don't accept electrical parts supposed to be just as good. Insist on and get Autolite original factory parts at your neighborhood service station, car dealer, garage, or repair shop. Remember, you're always right with Autolite. Next Thursday for Suspense, Charles Lawton and June Havoc will be our stars. The play is called Blind Date, and it is, as we say... A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense! Tonight's Suspense play was produced and edited by William Spear and directed by Norman MacDonald. Music for Suspense is composed by Lucian Morawieck and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Experiment 6R was a radio play by Donald Stubbs and Harold Kahn. John Lund may currently be seen in the Hal Wallace production for Paramount, My Friend Irma. In the coming weeks, you will hear such stars as Van Johnson, Edward Arnold, and Betty Davis. Don't forget, next Thursday, same time, Autolite will present Suspense, starring Charles Lawton and June Havoc. Buy Autolite resistor spark plugs, Autolite stay-full batteries, Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. There's more from Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, Suspense, The Relic Radio Show, and all of the other Relic Radio podcasts at relicradio.com. You'll also find our Shoutcast stream there and those donate buttons if you'd like to help support us. Thanks again to those who have. Thanks for joining me this week. I'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of The Relic Radio Show.